Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. An ongoing conversation with ministry leaders about embracing complexity and uncertainty with joy and faithfulness. Hi friends, this is Adam Borneman with the Ministry Collaborative, and for quite some time now I've been hoping to have Karen Rohr on the podcast with us. Karen's become a friend of mine in recent years, and because she sits from an interesting perspective on congregational life and ministry life in general. So I'm really excited to finally sit down with her for a few minutes. Karen, thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Karen, could you do just a quick bio of where you are and what you're doing there? Sure. So I'm the director of the Center for Adaptive and Innovative Ministry at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and I came from New Faith Community World. So I'm a Presbyterian pastor and helped to start a New Faith Community in Philadelphia before I came to Pittsburgh. So you work somewhere that has the words adaptive and innovative in it that have become words that are just thrown around a lot especially, or not least in ministry world the last several years, so much so that I wonder if they've kind of lost their punch. And I'm wondering, what are you seeing in terms of what's adaptive and what's innovative? You know, what are you all thinking about and how has your focus changed in recent years? Sure. When I think about adaptation, that has everything to do with the ecosystem and the way that the ecosystem and the individual organization are interacting. If you're going to adapt to survive the changes made in your ecosystem, you need to pay attention to what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. So adaptation is a deeply contextual way to view the world, whether as an individual or a new faith community or an established faith community or any institution. So when I think about adaptation, it's almost entirely about context. And we do a lot with that. A lot of what we do in terms of change leadership is looking at what's happening within and around communities to think about things as a broader ecosystem. And that's not just the ecosystem of church, that's also the ecosystem of culture. In terms of innovation, there have been a variety of sort of innovation takedown pieces, and I'm sure you've <laughs> encountered some of them. Like, this is why I ask these questions. I need to get it from the source. So yeah, talk about the innovation takedowns. Listen, every word has its flaws, but you have to have words to have a name. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, I get it. Innovation sounds a little bit techy. It sounds mm. a little bit like... West Coast, Silicon Valley, very, very expensive fleece-wearing professional. I get it. I actually think that innovation is the bubbling up of something that feels both new and deeply fitting. People, people have asked me actually a couple times recently, what's the most innovative thing that you've seen? And to me, innovation entirely depends on the organization in question. So yeah. sometimes the most innovative thing possible is doing ancient church practices. Mm -hmm, Sometimes mm -hmm. the most innovative thing possible is 1950s Presbyterian liturgy. Depends on where you are and what you're responding to. But if something is bubbling up that is new and deeply fitting, that to me seems like innovation. Yeah, that is really helpful. I'm really glad you put it that way because I was going to poke at the common definitions of innovation that we get. And then you kind of beat me to the punch. The way you put it actually makes a lot of sense to me. I want to run a thesis by you and then get your response. I have started talking about innovation and adaptivity similarly, almost to say that for a lot of ministry settings, innovation is actually recovery. Innovation is actually a recovery of types of raw material that we've abandoned that are actually really valuable for us. Another thing I'll say is that with the common definitions of adaptation or innovation, I think I've long overestimated 
the number of ministry settings that have the capacity to do that, even if they really want to. For some of them, it's not so much that you should innovate, but you should think creatively about how you might resource innovation that's not actually tethered to you very much. So I've put two or three things out there. What strikes you as moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? I think it's interesting that you talked about innovation a little bit as unearthing. I'm going to give away what kind of youth and childhood I had in the church, but I think of the <laughs> jars of clay song, like we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That was a scripture first, incidentally, but in my formative <laughs> years, it was a jars of clay song. But this idea that like, yeah, all treasure is waiting to be unearthed, right? It's all there. And so unearthing the best, most innovative way to proceed is a community affair, I think. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. some people are more suited to doing it within themselves, within their communities, and others are more suited to a supportive role because of capacity issues. Now, I would say unearthing the innovation that could be to come in a vacuum, it would be innately egalitarian. Everybody's got a chance to have that treasure and unearth that treasure, just mm -hmm. like the Imago mm -hmm. Day. The way that we have structured church, though, is deeply inequitable. Mm -hmm. And so some churches are kind of set up to have that kind of capacity and some aren't, and every gradient in between. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had with our friend Todd Bolsinger, who's written a lot about this. And Todd has pretty publicly shared with folks that that's been where his work has been at lately, which is people saying, yes, we all love this idea of adapting. What exactly do we do? And it has to do with this complexity of what you just described is, first of all, naming whether or not we have the capacity to do it and being honest about it and frankly, being faithful about it and not getting ahead of ourselves. So yeah, I think you're right on. I also have realized over the years that to your point about contextualization, that pastors and congregations, alternative ministry settings, whatever it might be, across our network, the ones that have always been on the margins, the ones that from their very beginning have had to be somewhat alternative, I think especially of pastors and congregations of historically black traditions and many other, I think about in Atlanta, a lot of our smaller immigrant churches, it's baked in to the culture from the beginning that's a very different sort of way of dealing with this. It's not to say that ministry is just inherently easier that way, but that this element of it does seem to be baked in from the beginning. And I'm wondering in the different sorts of leaders and contexts, ministries you've worked with over the years, how have you seen that play out? What sort of context resonate more with the types of things you're describing? And do you see any common threads? Yeah. Well, first, I'm going to start with a caveat, and that is that I do not think that suffering is salvific. Right. I want to name that on the front end because there's a nuance in this conversation that can lead us there. That being said, I do think that people who are more acutely in touch with their own humanity do better at the agility that it takes to adapt in an ecosystem. If you're more in touch with your own limitations, your need for other people, your need for community, you fight harder for community to thrive. Mm -hmm. And that shows up in a bunch of different ways. In Philadelphia, I worked with folks dealing with vulnerability, homelessness, hunger, et cetera. And the deep connectedness of that community and the incredible adaptability to just communicate. If you told one person about a resource one morning by the afternoon, the entire network would know mm -hmm. because they understood that their health and well-being, their actual literal survival came from the community of which they were a part. And I think that that is also true of faith communities. When you feel vulnerable, when you're in touch with your own limitations, 
you remember that the thing that will save you is not your bank account. The thing that will save you is not your own quiet, atomized life, your particular job. The thing that will be there for you when nothing else will be there for you is the community. Mm. And when we're talking about church and adapting and innovating, we're talking about surviving as communities in a broader ecosystem. Mm -hmm. What dies when a church dies is a particular expression of community. Yeah, I want to push that a little bit further and ask what sort of spiritual vitality or soul wellness or spiritual maturity, whatever you want to call it, particularly in those kind of contexts, what does that look like? Because this is more than just picking up the latest book on innovation and figuring it out. We're talking about communities that have certain sets of values that they have to stick with. And so I'm wondering on that more kind of spiritual, theological, faith-filled level, what's at stake? Yeah, I think one of the deeply important things is the ability to recognize one's own belovedness and allow that to trickle out and allow you to see the belovedness of those around you. Mm-hmm. I spent some time in a faith community earlier on in my adulthood where there was a lot of shame about the material poverty in the community. But it was quite clear to me as an outsider that all of this material poverty had come from particular systems. The poverty was not caused by a lack of industriousness or a lack of a willingness to do hard work, right? But the people felt like their formative narrative was, if I work hard enough, I'll be able to be okay. And Mm so if I don't have enough, it's because I'm not working hard enough and it's my fault. I have failed at the American dream, which is an absolute truth. And the truth, the gospel, the innovation that needs to be spoken in that situation is you are beloved. It is not you who is not enough. And so it is worth supporting yourself and others like you. It is worth investing in compassion. It is worth noticing what you notice and recognizing the circumstances around you so that you can name truly that you are beloved, that you are called, that you are working hard, even in the midst of a really difficult circumstance. Hmm. I mean, I think part of the spiritual practice is keeping your identity, your sense of self rooted in God's love and naming that and living Mm -hmm. in that space Mm -hmm. as much as possible, because all of the narratives that come at you, especially when you're dealing with scarcity, Mm. are narratives that invite you to give up in the face of the giants that you're tilting at. Yeah. Amen. That's such a good word. And I also am increasingly seeing that with folks that we work with across the country. And, And I will admit that I think, you know, if you'd asked me three or four years ago that a question around that, I I would have underestimated that. I think I've come back around to realize, oh, wow, there really does have to be, as you described, that sort of sense of belovedness and a reception of that. I want to switch gears just slightly based on a conversation I was having with a group of people the other day. This is a group of 20 or 30 folks on Zoom, and they wanted to have this kind of conversation. And a great question that was posed that I've heard before is, you know, what do we do in our denominational structures? A lot of us have some sorts of connections like that. How do we decide whether or not those structures can be good conversation partners for this or where the levers we should pull or not pull? I think a lot of folks are trying to discern whether or not there are ways forward within those structures. I think for some, there aren't. And for others, there are. I hear some great stories all across the board. So when people are looking to those systems, those structures, and they're asking you that question, they say, Karen, what are the sort of things I need to be paying attention to in discerning whether or not there's a way forward? What do you tell them? Well, first of all, I'm in a really fortunate position to make these kind of calls and observations because I work in theological education, which means that 
neither the judicatory nor the national denomination nor the local church signed my paycheck, right? (laughs) Right, And so I can look out at this ecosystem and be like, that looks like a problem. This isn't working. This person is not going to help you. This person is Mm -hmm. because I'm not vulnerable in the same way to those forces. Now, I'm part of an institution too, and institutions are complicated. Of course. But being outside the ecosystem that people need to engage to start something new, to seek transformation... I have a lot of agility to be honest without repercussions. So that means a lot to me. And when I'm helping people figure out where to look, it is generally talk to an individual who can guide you. Mm -hmm. And there are people of peace in all kinds of systems. I'm in an ethically ambiguous system myself. I'm a Presbyterian minister. And the Presbyterian church is both really great and like discerning the spirit and community and staying connected. And like, we have a lot of money that people got for bad reasons. And it may just be that lawyers govern that money and that's what's happening. It's hard to say. Maybe both are true. Probably both are true. So when I help someone navigate this system. I want them to understand both who they can trust to talk to and how the power flows in the system. Mm -hmm, In the Presbyterian system, we have people on the ground who are seeing certain trends and the people they consult with are usually people from the national office who have a totally different experience Mm -hmm. than the people at the general assembly and the people at the judicatory level. The power functions differently. The incentive structure is different. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but we have to understand how the power flows if we're going to get the collaboration that we need to do something innovative. And we also need to remember that as a connectional church, we will need broad stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And it's a small world. It behooves us to make trustworthy connections. Even when we get frustrated, even when we want to cut and run, this is a family, right? Mm -hmm. It can function like a family. And that's messed up, but you know, I was born into a particular family and... I have been blessed enough to not have occasion to need to leave that family. Mm -hmm. And I think discerning clearly whether or not this is a family we need to leave Mm. is worth doing. And for some people, the answer is yes. I really appreciate the way you describe that sort of complexity. And what I've learned in recent years is that that is highly contextual and even highly regional. I talk to people from different parts of the country in different sort of situations. And by the way, this is across denominations. There's some really common themes and common threads, no matter what your polity or structure is. I also really love how you're using the image of a person of peace. I think it's exactly right, is to help people think, who are the individuals? Where are the conversations that are welcoming and hospitable, where I might further explore, where I might further stay curious, and where I might have a way forward that is fruitful. I think that's really hard work. I I don't think it's easy. I also always add a little line of humility and sympathy on this, meaning that I'm sympathetic to the fact that a lot of our structures are full of individuals that I highly respect and who are extremely faithful, competent, committed people, but that sometimes the systems themselves... You know, it's like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? It doesn't matter how many amazing people you put in there. We just have some inherited structures that make it a little bit tricky. And I think it's okay to name all sides of that equation and just say it's difficult. But I do find with pastors that they're looking for some sort of litmus test or criteria for discerning where the spirit might be taking them. Yeah, that's, I mean, the litmus test question is hard because I do think it's about people of peace and some of the 
most sanctifying relationships I've been a part of that have formed me in the way I want to be formed are people I was very suspicious of because of where they fell on whatever litmus test I was using. And <laughs> right, it turned right. out that they were a person of peace yes. in a way that someone who would have passed my litmus test wouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded again that the ecosystem that God has for us is not necessarily the ecosystem we vision for ourselves. And that can be an incredible gift and a grace. And also like there need to be types of church and types of leadership that I'm not sure about for all of God's people to be drawn together Mm -hmm. and that that's actually good for me to learn. Last question for you. I think this will tie it up pretty well. What do you see on the horizon of faith-filled innovation? You know, if someone's asking you, Karen, what do you want us to be paying attention to under these huge headlines of adaptiveness and innovation for ministry? I mean, the thing that I've been thinking about a whole lot is all the spaces that the church has absented itself from by saying, oh, we don't want to have conversations about politics. We don't want to have conversations about economics. Money makes us feel icky. We don't want to have... And actually, those conversations are all the places people are having meaningful conversations in our society. Mm, yeah. And for some people, conversations that are life and death conversations. And so the church then comes back and says, like, why doesn't anyone us want us to speak of the important issues of our age? Well, because you said you didn't want to talk about the important issues of our age. Mm. And so I'm thinking about ways that the individuals who are a part of church can carry the church that they have experienced, that they've been formed by, that they have within themselves out into the world and into those conversations and how they can actually leverage, even embody that church formation in the world. I don't think we've done a good job of forming people to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how we can take people who are faithful, people who are spiritually interested and set them free to be faithful in the world instead of steering everyone towards becoming a pastor. Because I think we're seeing that that isn't the only path and can't be the only path. Amen. Karen, thanks so much. This conversation's given me a lot to chew on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. The Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Our producer is Marthane Sanders. To find out more about our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org. 